Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. I was uh, standing in line outside of Jonah's preschool on Friday. Hi, Jonah. (laughs) And I was uh, chatting with a friend of mine, and she asked me, "Um, what are you doing this weekend? And I made the mistake of um, telling her that I was preaching on Sunday. And this friend is a Christian, and she asked me, what are you preaching on? And there were a bunch of people standing around, um, little kids with their backpacks and little Paw Patrol lunchboxes. I felt all these eyes on me. And uh, I decided to, you know, say the truth, that I am preaching on the first exorcism in Mark's gospel. (laughs) And uh, this friend, she looked at me, and she put her hand on my arm, and she said, I'll pray for you. I think it's worth voicing that most of us don't exactly know what to do or what to make of passages like these. You know, we're educated Western folks, and sometimes we can be tempted to use Father Jordan's words to think of the devil as a cartoon, a childish relic from a superstitious past. Most of our peers don't believe in these things, angels, demons, exorcisms. And um, the, the world's evils can be attributed pretty you know, easily to a lack of education, ineffective governance, the kind of ills and diseases described in religious texts like the New Testament as mere primitive misdiagnoses of medical conditions that today we cure with medicine and talk therapy. On the other hand, a lot of us know some folks, maybe a, a very religious aunt or something, who's always prone to overly attributing every evil to demonic forces. She's always blaming, or he's always blaming devils for for hurricanes, but also bad hair days, everything in between. So we have to avoid what Lewis described as two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall concerning the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I don't know about you, but historically, up until really recently, I've mostly fallen into that first error of disbelief. And so texts like this one this morning are both a bit of a challenge and um, a corrective as well, because it's clear that the author of Mark took the existence of demons absolutely for granted. And he saw exorcisms as definitive signs that the kingdom of God had come. Other New Testament writers, like Paul, for instance, talks about Christians having a battle not with flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers of darkness that wreak havoc in the world around us and the world inside of us. So while this passage represents an extreme case of demonic interference, one that we may not have seen with our own eyes, although maybe some of you here have, we can see in it a dynamic that we do recognize, that we can name, that we have seen all too many times, an evil we know too well. It's the evil of people being crushed and manipulated, controlled and dehumanized by forces that are more powerful than they are. And we see also that we have only one hope against evil like this. 
It's Jesus, our brother, the one we know and love, who's the son of God. He came to reclaim and restore his friends who are broken and held in bondage. And so I'm going to hew pretty close to the text this morning, and I'm going to talk about this exorcism in two of its aspects, the aspect of reclamation and the aspect of restoration. It's a reclamation and it's a restoration. And my hope is that while talk of demons can sometimes make us feel a little wobbly and uncertain, we will be steadied by looking to Jesus. The same Jesus that we know and love is the Jesus that sent a demon fleeing by the authority of his Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that same Jesus and that same Holy Spirit are present here with us today, working in and through us to reclaim and restore us. So let's go ahead and get into it. We are in Mark 1, starting in verse 21. All right, let's talk about reclamation. Note, I use a word reclaim, not just claim. You know, anybody can claim something. You can, you can call shotgun, doesn't necessarily mean it's yours, but you can only reclaim that which actually belongs to you. So in what way is this exorcism a reclamation? This story is a, a story about reclamation. It's a, the reclamation of God's children from a brutal rule of powers and people and authorities that have no right to rule over them. Jesus can do this because he has authority. He has an authority that far outpaces first that of the scribes and then more dramatically that of um, Satan and his uh, lackeys. Um, or can we call demons lackeys? I got, anyway, maybe we shouldn't. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, Satan and his, and his henchmen as, as his, his representatives. Now, we have to read carefully in Mark because Mark as a pro stylist is... Um, well, let's just say he's a little light on words sometimes. He doesn't give us a lot of details. He's not like Luke, who's always editorializing and explaining just what we should think about something. Or, you know, John, who's like floating away on some mystical cloud. Mark just kind of gets straight to the point. But sometimes he leaves a few details out, so we have to color in the lines a little bit. But here, starting in verse 21, is a perfect example. Here's how he describes Jesus' teaching. He says, and they probably meaning Jesus and the four disciples he's just called, Peter and Andrew, James, and John, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And we might well wish that Mark would tell us exactly what Jesus taught or how his teaching was different from that of the scribes. Um, but if we look closely or we think more closely about it, um, commentators can kind of help us figure out what is this teaching. William Lane proposes that what Jesus was teaching is um, the passage that Jordan taught on last week, a recapitulation of that, the essential kernel of the gospel, which is this. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, what makes Jesus' teaching different from that of other teachers is that Jesus doesn't just talk about the kingdom of God. He doesn't just describe the kingdom of God. Here in his first miracle, at least the first miracle um, reported in Mark's gospel, Jesus actually ushers in that kingdom. He brings it in. 
because he is fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah, that the Messiah would proclaim good news to the poor, heal the sick, and set free those who are oppressed. So whereas the scribes, who were essentially scholars, interpreters, they might teach people the correct way to observe this or that Levitical purity law according to the traditions of the elders, but Jesus shows up as an agent of the lawmaker himself. That's the meaning. That is the meaning of the title, the Holy One of God, which the devil will, or the demon will quite correctly name him later. Remember our reading this morning from Deuteronomy. Who's read from Deuteronomy in a while? I was like, whoo, this feels dusty. But here's the thing. This is referring to this passage, right? God said that he would send a prophet and then he would put his own words in that prophet's mouth. Put another way, Jesus doesn't just speak about God. He speaks for God. He speaks as God. And the quality of his speaking, of his words, it's categorically unlike any merely human word. You know, because the scribes can explain the law. They can describe reality. They can describe what the law means. But Jesus' authoritative word here not just describes reality. It makes reality. It shapes reality. It produces a new reality. He says the kingdom is coming, and thus it comes. And by a few simple words, be silent. Come out of him. He casts out a demon. That is the tangible sign of the kingdom coming. So Jesus' Jesus's word has authority over reality itself. He makes reality happen. But let's zoom in to the actual exorcism for a minute and see what it, what it says about Jesus' authority. Um, here I'm going to give you a little nerdy historical context that might help us understand, you know, many of us have not seen an exorcism or maybe even thought about it very much, so maybe this little detail can help you. As I said, in Mark's time, um, and honestly for most of human history, and honestly in most places of the world today, though not in the West, there has been a pervasive belief in evil spirits that are intelligent. So of course, there's also been the development of lots of tactics for dealing with said evil spirits. And um, in Jesus's time, there was a well-established tactic for exercising authority over uh, evil spirits. And that tactic was to pronounce the real or secret name of the enemy. It was thought that in doing that, you would show authority over that being, and then the being would get scared, and it would go away. So here, um, the unclean spirit in verse 24, when it says it knows who Jesus is, and it pronounces his secret title, one that people don't know yet, the Holy One of God, the unclean spirit himself is trying to exorcise Jesus. He's trying to show Jesus that he has mastery over him, to, sub to subdue him and disarm him. You know, some people can read this and say, this is like a confession. Like, the demon is, like, confessing that, you know, Jesus is Lord. But no, there's no reverence in this. This isn't a confession. This is an act of aggression, and this is an act of trying to have uh, mastery. And that is just... That's how Satan works, okay? This is a strategy that he uses all the time, and that's why Jesus having authority over demons is such gospel, like it's such good news for us. If the Gospel of Mark is an epic about, in one commentator's words, 
the kingdom of God going head to head with its unseen, though ultimate, opponent, the power structures of evil. This passage is a microcosm of that conflict. It's a stark example of the intimate and the brutal power that Satan holds over those he has in bondage. When we meet this possessed man, when we see him for the first time, we see someone who is barely a person, someone who has had his humanity hollowed out. He's just a container for this demon. This is something we see really remarkably, actually, if we attend to the subjects in the sentences of 23 through 26. So in verse 23, when he, that is the man, cries out, it's the demon's voice that comes out of his mouth. And the demon speaks not just for himself. He also uses that classic abuser's tactic of speaking for the victim. Notice that he asked Jesus not, have you come to destroy me? But have you come to destroy us? There's some ambiguity in the word us there. You know, it could mean like a multiplicity of demons as in like legion in Mark 5, or it could mean the whole host of um, uh, Satan's army, which uh, Jesus has come to rout. But when I read this, what I read is us means the demon and this man, us. Have you come to destroy us? The demon has so peristicized this person that he has subsumed the core of his being. So when Peter warns us here, saints, to be on guard against the devil, he warns that Satan works in this way. This is what he likes to do. He doesn't say, watch out, because Satan wants to take an itty-bitty, tiny, small part of you. No, he says the devil prowls like a lion looking for someone to devour, to eat up whole. That's the essence of satanic authority. It's to rule over someone by subverting their will and taking them over until they can't even speak with their own voice. Satan doesn't care about unique human persons, human persons like the ones that I am looking at right now, unique, individual. He just wants people he can use. Nothing, nothing could be more opposite of the Son of God's authority and how he uses it. Where Satan suppresses humanity, he subverts people to his own will. Jesus uses his power to restore personhood, to restore identity. See the manner in which he exercises this demon, friends. Where there is an unholy conflation of demon and man, Jesus goes in and he surgically cuts the demon away. He says to the demon, in essence, there is no us here. There is you and there is him and you get out of him. He can do this because he is Lord over heaven and earth. He is the son of God. He has been empowered by the spirit of God to liberate God's children. Can you imagine that? Just think about this. The word that was there in the beginning through whom everything was made, who was there when the first person opened his eyes, who, as we are told by David, fitted each one of us together, cell by cell, skin and sinews and soul in our mother's wombs. 
there is no being in the universe more invested in human, individual humans than Jesus. The one who knows the number of hairs on your head, the number of days in your life. And when he comes as Lord, when he brings his kingdom, Jesus comes to reclaim not just humankind, but individual human persons. Every person made in God's image. And so he does this tender, beautiful thing. Like he gives this man back to himself, having reclaimed his identity. And he's at a work, not just of reclamation here, but also of restoration. Restoration. He's restoring this man not just to himself, but also to relationship with God and with others. To understand that, we have to talk a little bit about this phrase, unclean spirit. Kind of a weird phrase. It's actually Mark's favorite phrase um, for demons. And when Mark refers to the demon as an unclean spirit, he's not just saying, he's saying both, that the spirit itself is unclean. It's unholy. It's an enemy of God who has done something wicked by defiling one of God's creatures. But he's also saying that this man has been made unclean by the spirit. He's been made ritually impure. So under Levitical laws, you became impure anytime you came into contact with death or with decay. You could get it by, you could be impure by having a skin disease, you know, by touching mold or like afterbirth or a dead animal. Uncleanness of this kind, it's not sinful, okay? It's not because of something you've done. It's just the collateral damage of living in a world that's contaminated by death. Folks who were ritually unpure, they couldn't approach Yahweh because Yahweh is the God of life and death and decay burn up in his presence. If you were originally impure, you also could not be around others because impurity was like a contagion. It was like a pollution. So if other people came near you, they could become impure. So there's just a certain hopelessness in this whole situation, right? Because the Levitical priests, they didn't have any power to cleanse or to heal. All they could do is wait for that unclean person to quarantine and see if the thing got better by itself, if it healed naturally. And then the Levitical priest's job was to basically pronounce that that person was clean and then to offer a ceremonial washing and a sacrifice on their behalf. Folks like lepers and the possessed, what hope did they have? No one was going to want to draw near to them or take care of them. They're afraid. They're afraid of becoming contaminated by being near to them. Again, I want to just emphasize this. In Mark's gospel, uh, possessed people are never treated as sinful. Um, Jesus, often when he heals people who have bodily sicknesses, he'll offer them forgiveness. He never does that to a possessed person in um, Mark's gospel. And while the sick are usually able to advocate for themselves, the demonized are entirely helpless. They're either brought to Jesus or they're sought out by him. Okay, let's look at this. Isolation, estrangement, being cut off from God and others, these are hallmarks of demonic strategy, aren't they? What is more satanic than to get someone alone and whisper in their ear, you're unclean, you're unloved, no one's going to help you. And yet, 
we see the glorious way that Jesus steps into his authority in response to this kind of strategy, to this satanic strategy. The priests had no power to make anyone clean, no way of reversing decay or breaking the power of sin and death, but Jesus does. And look how Jesus holds his divine holiness, how he carries it. He doesn't send this man away. He doesn't say, get away from me. You're unclean. No. He sends the demon away because he wants the man to stay. He wants to make him clean. He wants to be near him. And that's the incarnation. We, the unclean, could not approach a holy God. So what did God do? He wrapped himself in flesh to protect us. And the glory of the Lord came out of the temple and into a midst of unclean people. He walked among the broken and the bruised, a people defiled by sin and by suffering, done by them, done to them, and he touched them with his hand and he made them clean. And he freed them with just his word. Be silent. Come out of him. Wherever that God goes now, he reclaims and he restores. What does he need to reclaim in you? Is there some part of your humanity that Satan has managed to crush? Has he reduced you to some narrow version of yourself, telling you you're only your frailties and your sins, that you have no hope, that you will never be clean, that you'll never be free? Or has he convinced you that God doesn't know you, doesn't really know you, care about you, love you, want to be near you? Has Satan squeezed out the truth in your life to make room for his lies? And what does God need to restore you to? Have you withdrawn from community or from God because you don't feel worthy? I'm saying this as someone who has felt spiritual oppression, sometimes acutely, and when I feel it, I just want to withdraw from other people and hide. A while ago, I was processing something um, really terrible that happened to me, a moment when I had been damaged by evil, and I thought maybe, like, maybe permanently damaged. I knew I needed help, and I knew I needed a friend. So I called Deacon Cindy, <laughs> and she sat with me in that prayer room downstairs, right down there, and she led me through the most powerful time of healing prayer I will probably ever have. She helped me because she reminded me what the communion of saints has always done. The communion of saints remembers our baptism. We remember that we have been sealed as Christ's forever. And she reminded me that the communion of saints renounces the devil. We renounce the work of the one who corrupts and destroys the creatures of God. Might you, today, right now, renounce him too? Might you take hold of the joy of being filled up with God's spirit? Because if God's spirit is there, there is no room for any other spirit. Might you give yourself over to the goodness of abiding in God 
the comfort of loving and being loved by others who know you as the fully redeemed daughter or son of God that you are. I pray that for you. I pray that for each of you, that you would let Christ draw near to you to reclaim you as his own and to restore you. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.